over the last few years, there's been a, a flurry of sensational books about people who have visited heaven and come back to tell the tale. Usually, uh, in these books, these sensational uh, accounts, the stories are full of all these specific details about what heaven is like, about who is there, about what's happening uh, in the celestial realm. And usually, usually in those accounts, the experience uh, centers on them as the center of attention uh, rather than the glory of God, the experience and the vision of the glory of God as the center of the universe. Uh, why, Why are these so popular? And there's been tons of them lately. They're probably so popular because... Uh, just like every other uh, story about paranormal activity or about new age astonishment, uh, everybody wants to get a preview of the next life. Everybody wants a preview of heaven. And especially as humans, we want to see like how that experience is all centered around us as the center of attention. And what's heaven going to be like for me? Uh, and so usually when you see, when, when you think about the stories and how they're constructed and what they talk about, and then you read uh, the story that we just read out of the Bible, you can see this vast difference between them. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes the books or stories are just kind of silly. Uh, sometimes they just conflict with scripture, sometimes in grievous ways. Sometimes people later admit that they just made them all up to get popularity, and then sometimes the stories are true. And how do we know when they're true? Well, because whenever the Lord God Almighty commissions someone to be a prophet, he brings them up into the heavenly realm, uh, and they have a vision of the throne room of God. Think about Isaiah. Think about Ezekiel. Think about Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, even Paul hints that he was brought up into the third heaven. He doesn't quite confess that it was him. He doesn't want to brag and say it was him. He says, I know a man who, whether in the spirit or not in the spirit, was brought up to the seventh heaven or the, the third heaven. Uh, but John, in the New Testament, John is the one. He's the guy who has the most uh, detailed, uh, the longest, the most beautiful vision Uh, given to him about the heavenly realm as he is commissioned to be a prophet and then to go back and tell his people, to tell God's people what the visions that he's about to receive mean for our comfort and for our strength because God wants us to be encouraged even in the midst of this evil age where there's so much suffering in the church. Because remember, the book of Revelation is not a book. We talked about this in the beginning of our series. This is not a book that was written just for people a long time ago. It's not a book that's written for a group of people sometime in the future. It's a book that is written for the entire church age and for all of God's people to encourage us uh, and to strengthen us. And so he is telling us things meant to encourage us. And so all of the visions from the book of Revelation, where they start here. And of all the visions, this one is the most stunning because John has been transported to the true center of the universe, to the really the timeless hyperdimensional throne of God, where truth and reality can be clearly seen away from the distorted lenses of the world. And what he sees here then sets the stage for the rest of the visions. Right up front, God says, you're going to be okay. 
And in these visions, he says that and gives us the ultimate confidence that he is in perfect control. And so what does John see when he's transported into heaven? The first thing he sees is that God is in complete control of all things. There is a, uh, there's a movie, uh, probably a decade old now, maybe more, called Contacts with Jodie Foster. It's a story about a scientist and they're contacted uh, by an alien intelligence to build this giant machine uh, that, it's, that, that produces interdimensional travel. And she's, uh, it, it's this giant machine, 10 stories tall, and she's put in this pod and the, the machine drops her through this, uh, you know, the, the magnetic whatever, the ray that they've developed. And as she trans goes through that, she's transported into, you know, transported into this hyperdimensional reality. Uh, and from the outside, it's quick. In fact, no one believes her at first because the pod just drops straight through. But what happens to her when she goes through this hyperdimensional experience, she runs into and she meets in the movie, the supernatural intelligence behind all of this, and it appears to her as her dad, and they're on the beach, just walking down the beach, talking like they used to do when she was a little girl. Uh, The supernatural intelligence brought her and, and entered the conversation to her with truth in a way that she could comprehend it and understand it uh, without blowing her mind. And the vision sequences are much the same. Uh, God is communicating truth to John in ways that he and his culture would be able to understand. When we talk about When we talk about our knowledge of God, what we know to be true about God, we talk about how everything that we know to be true about God is given to us by way of analogy. In other words, it's true, it represents truth, but it's not the fullness of truth, uh, and it's given to us in a way that we can understand, given our our frailties as as fallen people. and that's, that has to be that way because, number one, only God is able to comprehend himself in all of his fullness. But secondly, uh, we are just not able to comprehend the fullness of the heavenly realm. And so when God transmits information to us or gives us this information, he shows us truth in the way that we can understand. And so what is it that John sees when he's transported up into the heavenly realms? He sees to him what would have been... A, he would have seen as the seat of all judgment and power. He sees an ancient Near Eastern throne room and a court and God on the throne. And he sees all these elements of that, of that very familiar vision to him. And all the elements signify or symbolize things that he would have understood clearly in his culture. So what does he see? He sees, first, he sees the throne which would have, he would have understood to be the power, the seat of power and judgment in the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, the flashes of lightning, the peals of thunder. Um, uh, in some of the Old Testament accounts of the same vision, you see the streams of fire shooting out from the throne. All of that speaks of judgment and power and ultimate sovereignty. He sees the one who's seated on the throne, but he doesn't see a human caricature. What he sees is... Uh, he describes it in, in the sense of precious stones, diamonds, rubies, emeralds, sapphires that are just radiating this beautiful cloud of rainbow color glory 
uh, behind which the Lord is, but it doesn't actually show the Lord. And it also speaks in that rainbow of God's covenant of grace with man. And around the throne are the 24 elders seated on thrones. There's a lot of debate about who they are. Some people say that they are the representative of the 24 courses of Levitical priests of the Old Testament. Uh, some people think that they are 12 uh, patriarchs of Israel, the 12 uh, apostles. Uh, what this is is a composite symbol of all those things put together, and the 24 elders represent all the elect of God. You can see that because they, are, they, are, they have received and they are living in the promises that were given to the seven churches that we just read. They're dressed in white garments. They have gold crowns on their heads. They're living in the temple of God, worshiping every day and all day. And so they represent really us, perfected humanity, living in the presence of God and worshiping him. Uh, there is the seven torches of fire, God's spirit, omnipresence, omniscience, God's power uh, and the spirit of God that is seeing all things throughout the world. There's a sea of glass like crystal. In the Old Testament, the sea was seen as chaos and death and tumultuous, but here the sea is so still, the surface looks like a crystal. It's a picture of God's complete victory over sin and death as the sea is completely still. And the four living creatures represent all created life uh, in right relationship to God, offering ceaseless praise. So John enters into this, what looks like an ancient Near Eastern throne room of a king, but it's just chock full of all these symbols of all creation uh, redeemed in right relationship with God, offering him ceaseless praise in the way that the universe uh, will operate uh, and is operating in the heavenly realms right now. And so what do we learn from that? Big picture, we learn that God is holy. God is absolutely uh, limitless in his perfection and beauty. And we learn that God is sovereign, meaning that God has all power. God, uh, he has all power over all things, including he has all power over evil and all power over everything bad happening in the world. And that's, that's a good, that's good to understand. Sometimes I think maybe we think about, and we talk a lot about God's sovereignty, and it seems like this abstract Concept Like, yes, God is sovereign. He's in control of all things, but I've got to balance my checkbook. Uh, I've got to get a job. <clears throat> so what does it matter? What is, why does understanding God's sovereignty matter in everyday life? Um, probably the, one, of the more, one of the most popular religious ideas in the world uh, is the idea of yin and yang, or balanced opposing forces, where the world is made up of good forces and evil forces that are battling against each other and therefore creating uh, balance in the universe. Uh, and if that's true, that that war is going back and forth, then there's no, ever, no clear winner. And it also assumes that somehow evil uh, is bringing balance and goodness into the world. But that's not what the idea of sovereignty says. Sovereignty says that it's not an even matched contest. It's not even a contest at all. God in his sovereignty is in perfect control 
of all evil and the book of Revelation and the visions. It's really this picture of God allowing evil to run its course while at the same time he is driving it like cattle to his predestined end. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that, even though we're suffering and he allows suffering from evil to hit us, he promises to protect us in and through that and even use that suffering to strengthen us, to build us up and for our good and for his glory. So like on a daily basis, um, what that means is we know that God has never left us. God's power has never abandoned us. So there's not any random things that we have to worry about. Is God going to control this for good? Is God, is this totally up to me? Uh, is this something that evil might gain the upper hand in for a minute? None of that is true. Understanding sovereignty and God's sovereignty over all things, including evil, lets us know that he is in control of all things. Nothing comes to us outside of his perfect will. Uh, nothing comes to us outside of his direction and control. And so that we can, we can trust that. We can rest in him in knowing that we are under his protection no matter what. Uh, the holiness, that, now that's all great news. The holiness part, seeing God in his limitless perfection and beauty Uh, all those peals of thunder and lightning, it's reminiscent of some of the passages we read earlier of God descending on Mount Sinai in such terror that the people begged that he would never, ever, ever do that again because they saw his holiness, they recognized their own sinfulness, and it brought their attention to this limitless, this gulf that we could never cross. And so God is presented in this holiness, in this perfection, in this glory, so different from us. The bad news is, we look at that and we think, how could we ever, ever come into the presence of God like that? And John gets this, and he begins to weep. Uh, And so the second thing, the second thing that we learn from this that is so encouraging is we see that Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won the battle for us. I have a a really good friend who uh, is struggling, as he was struggling with uh, overcoming addiction, right before he finally got sober for the last time, he, 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 he said to me that his experience of it was that the drug was so powerful and it was so overwhelming that he'd just become convinced that nothing was ever going to save him. And in that despair, he was trying to make it through life. Nothing was ever, ever, ever going to be able to save him. And John in, is having a similar experience in this vision. Have you ever had a dream where you didn't know all the details of what was happening, but you still felt full emotional weight of the consequence of that dream. John, in this dreamlike state in the vision, doesn't understand all the consequences behind the seal and the, uh, the scroll and the seals on the scroll and that he doesn't understand the consequences of what's bad about it not being able to be opened, but he is overwhelmed with the emotional weight of the knowledge that if nobody opens that seal, everything is lost. Everything is lost. All people are doomed. He understands uh, 
That's a big deal. The scroll, what is the scroll? The scroll is probably the best way to explain it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's God's covenant promise to carry out uh, the consummation of his judgment and salvation throughout the earth, in through, in through the church age. We see that as the seals are cracked open. We see God executing judgment. We see Jesus really executing judgment in holy war. Uh, and so if that document isn't cracked open, if no one is able to open it, what that means is that God's ultimate consummation in history, God's ultimate salvation of mankind, God's ultimate judgment on evil, God making all things right, will not ever happen. And the problem is, a man has to open the scroll because the dominion over the earth was promised to Adam who forfeited that dominion. And yet, the scroll contains the condemnation and curse for sin over every single man. And John, who doesn't know all those facts, but is able to discern the dilemma, only a man can open that scroll, and yet no man is even close to being worthy to cracking it open If it's not cracked open, God's final judgment and salvation will never come. And he despairs. He weeps loudly. That's like, that's in Hebrew, screaming, uh, weeping, mourning with a loud voice because he is overcome. And then the angel says, Weep no more. It's one of those parts in the Bible that, where God just steps in and takes uh, something that seems to be complete failure that will never, ever be happy or good or, or, or joyful in our hands and steps in and says, Weep no more. And Jesus shows up and takes the scroll from God's hand. That's a huge move. No one takes anything from God. God always gives, but in this instance, what's happened? Jesus has earned the right through his victorious life and death to take that scroll. He takes it because he's worthy to take it. His work, his accomplished work, his perfect life, his sinless death for us has made him worthy to take that scroll on our behalf uh, and execute victory over death. But it's a paradox. He's seen, uh, I mean, he's presented as the Lion of Judah, this conquering king. And yet when John looks at him, he's this lion with all the power of the king of, of, of beasts that that represents. But when he looks at him, he sees him as a lamb who was slain. And the paradox is that he was worthy to take that scroll or he was able to take that scroll, uh, not because of his power as a lion, but by the virtue of him being a lion and yet being slain as a lamb. That's the paradox of biblical strength. And I was thinking about this, really meditating on this this week and thinking a lot about it. I think sometimes we it's presented, and even in some commentaries you'll read, it says that, uh, that strength... Uh, true power is weakness. Like Jesus conquered through weakness. But I think a better way to say that is that true power looks like weakness 
in the midst of an evil and sinful world. So we think if you die, you lose, right? But what if death is a rebirth into real life? Uh, And what did Jesus do? Jesus held fast to truth and a truthful witness uh, in a hostile culture that wanted to kill him and eventually did because he refused to budge. He refused to give in on truth and and a a true representation and witness of God. And then in, in that and in and through that, in the providence and mystery and wonder and beauty and majesty and power of God, his death as a sinless and sacrificial victim on our behalf became the very thing that freed us from sin and from death. And he purchased us through that whole process. And so his conquering over the world primarily was in his sacrificial death for us, but his, his unwavering faith to the truth of God in and through that hostile culture is also depicted as his conquering, overcoming evil by staying a faithful witness through that hostility. And that, that is divine strength. That is divine power. That's not weakness. That's holding to truth in the midst of everything the devil threw at him, lying to him, tempting him, uh, trying to discourage him, trying to kill him, and eventually putting him through the process of torture and eventually death. And so, so when we look at that, we can see first thing that we learn, primary, is that Jesus has overcome the world. He has won the battle. He has won the war by his death on our behalf. And because of that, we are safe in him. And we are already home. Uh, we are without fear. We, are, we can be without fear. We are without a question. As to, there's no question anymore as to whether or not we are going to make it home because Jesus has won the battle on our behalf. And yet... Here we are in the world, we're still behind enemy lines. And we feel that. Because why? Because the enemy uh, is doing the same to us. You know, John in another book says that we overcome the world by our faith. And what does that mean? It means that right now in the world, the devil is trying to discourage us and lie to us and present deception and make us despair and cause us to give up. Uh, it is causing us to be dismayed. He threatens us with unemployment, threatens us with public ridicule, threatens us with our uh, reputation in the world being stained, threatens us with financial insecurities, threatens us with all, all of that persecution that we see in the book of Revelation. And that's what is, the, the visions are so important. The visions take us and took John into that timeless dimension of God's throne room where all of the distorted filters of earth are gone and we can see with clarity and precision the reality of what the devil is doing. And in the visions, we can see how beastly and awful evil truly is. And all of that is to give us strength and to encourage us that we have already won the victory and that everything the devil is throwing at us is distraction 
It's lies. It's hallucination. It's deception. And all of it for this singular purpose of causing us to fold up our witness and or to join the enemy forces, to convince us that Jesus hasn't won, to convince us that we uh, are not going to enter into glory, to convince us that we are going to end up on the wrong side of history or whatever else the world tells us. None of it is true. You know, uh, in, in the Lord of the Rings, Sauron uh, casts his, his, his web of influence over the kings and the rulers of the world. And there's two kings. There's King Theoden of Rohan and, and Denethor, the steward of Gondor. And Theoden is under the influence of a man named Wormtongue who's convincing him uh, he's convincing him that he's old and decrepit and that Sauron is too powerful to be beaten. And the same thing has happened to Denethor. Denethor has found this crystal ball that he communicates with and, and Sauron has lied and showed him uh, and that, he is un- undef- that he's not beatable, that he's too powerful, that he can't ever be beat. Uh, the spell is broken with Theoden and he goes on uh, to die in battle and victory. And Denethor, the spell's not broken. He continues to believe those lies and eventually lights himself on fire. So the clarity of these visions, the clarity of showing us the glory and majesty of God, the clarity of showing us that Jesus has won the victory for us on our behalf, uh, that we are already safe in him so that we can rest in that, the visions that show us the beastly nature of evil and Satan that show us the detailed battle plan of Satan against us, it's all to encourage us that this, this is such a short time that we're in. As the devil's throwing these things at us, trying to discourage us, it's such a short time. He is on the losing end, and we are on the victorious end. And as we understand this, this Revelation shows us these things to encourage us so that as that's happening, we can know that we, we may not be on the right side of history, but we will be on the right side of eternity because of what Jesus has done for us. And we can hold on to that and remain faithful witness. So, God, we know, is in total control of all things, including evil, cattle driving it to its predetermined end, Uh, caring for us in the midst of that suffering. We know that Jesus has already won the battle, uh, that we are still behind enemy lines, but the future is already won and secured. We know that Jesus has purchased us with his blood, and that gives us security and peace, knowing that we are his and that will never change. And we know that Jesus is now channeling power to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what is our response to that? What should our response to that be? What we see in this text, that Jesus is worthy of endless praise, endless and ceaseless praise. I don't know if you've ever been at a, you know, think about maybe a sporting event that you've been at where there was a clutch play and everybody just erupted in in praying and cheering. I um, was, I got to see, when I was an eight-year-old kid, I got to see Hank Aaron hit his 707th home run. Uh, at, in, at, at, at the stadium here in San Diego, and the crowd just erupted when he hits this home run, just... 
the whole crowd just erupted in praise. Uh, and as, as much as, uh, as they erupted in praise when I saw that, nothing, like nothing compared to seven months later when he hit 715 and broke Babe's Ruth record. The whole stadium just erupted in rejoicing. The game was stopped and everything. And as, as erupting and as amazing as that was, uh, it was still nothing and pales in comparison to the erupting praise of millions and millions of angels singing praise and worship as Jesus takes that scroll. All of heaven just erupts in praise and worship. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine it? I mean, it's so hard to imagine. But when I was a brand new Christian, the very first Easter I ever went to was at uh, like Cox Arena. And it was in the round, and the band started playing these worship songs, and you could almost, you could, the whole thing was full, everyone singing worship to God at the same time. It was so powerful, and I was so new in the faith, and everything was just so vibrant. It was almost, you could almost sense that we were truly a part of the heavenly worship. That's what Hebrews 12 is really talking about, the passage that we opened with, that we now, right now, there's like 80 of us right here in this thing. We, the roof blocks our vision, but we can't see it. But the angels see us as part of their endless and ceaseless worship of Jesus. We're like participating in that worship right now uh, in praise of God because Jesus is worthy of endless praise. He's worthy of endless praise because uh, he is able to enact and fulfill that consummation of God's judgment and power and salvation on the earth. When he cracks those seals, as we're going to get into in chapter 6, he's cracking those seals and it's Jesus going out in holy war against our enemies to win the battle and finish it off on our behalf in power for us. So whenever you get discouraged, whenever the devil is trying to tell you that this is nonsense or to bail out, just think about that. Jesus is right now putting all of our enemies under his feet. And he accomplished this through the divine strength of holding fast to God in and through all the torture that the devil was able to throw at him and then voluntarily offering himself up as the sacrifice for all of our sins. And just flipping the script on the devil and freeing all of us. And so because of that, text says that he receives all glory, power, wealth, wisdom, might, everything in chapter 4 that's ascribed to God, all the worship in chapter 4 of God, on the throne, as soon as Jesus grabs that scroll, all of a sudden everything changes and the same worship, the same titles, the same praise is being offered to Jesus, the lamb who is in the midst of the throne. And that's how the problem was solved. No man could ever take that scroll, but a man and God in union together would be able to do it. And God knew that. God sacrificed himself for us to bring us to himself. His love for us compelled him to save us. Uh, so, Jesus receives all of these blessings and power and honor and wealth and glory from God uh, 
And then he shares it with us as the co-heir. I have a friend who uh, was like, maybe you know somebody like this. This guy's not unique. He's like, I have no interest in Christianity because if heaven is like endless worshiping of God, I hate church. Why would I want to do that for eternity? That sounds miserable to me. Playing harps, worshiping God, the guy is totally missing the point. Uh, you know, Jesus is worthy of all praise, and we owe him in all of that honor and praise, but God is never a debtor to his people. And what we see, uh, what we see in this text is that worship isn't like feeding God's ego. Some people want to criticize God as saying worship isn't us just us in endless church service forever. Worship uh, is being connected to his life as Jesus channels uh, his blessing through the Spirit out to us and to all of his people. Uh, and we live in a culture, that we live in a culture that says to have autonomy, to be separate from God, to call your own shots, to do your own thing, to be your own person, uh, to make your own decisions, to live for yourself, to, uh, to, to undertake, to, to decide who you are as a person and create that reality for yourself is what creates joy and freedom. But the opposite is actually true. That autonomy, I don't know if you've ever felt this before, but have you gotten like in a stint when you're angry at God or you're fighting against him or you've decided in your head what you must have to be okay and you start fighting for that against your better sanctified wisdom and how, that, how does that end? It ends in misery. It ends in suffering and, and, and sadness. All of those creatures around God's throne, the elders, the living creatures, the angels, they are all, you can see them all receiving their worth and receiving their, their joy and fulfillment based on their proximity to that throne. They want to get closer. And that's the other paradox. Joy in the Christian life uh, is not by setting our own course and then fighting to make it happen. It is resting in the finished work of who Jesus is, resting in his perfect will for us. Uh, The struggle is to die to self, uh, to die and disbelieve all those lies of the enemy and to rest in Christ, to give up, the struggle for our own desires so that Christ can be all in all. The Spirit can fill us full of that joy and heavenly power so that we then can go out and be channels of life into the world and bring that blessing and bring salvation as God's people. That's what we should be doing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this vision of heaven that you've given us, Lord. You are, Lord, the glory that you have revealed to us, even by way of analogy, is overwhelming to our senses and our ability to reason. How much greater must it be? And we acknowledge, Lord, that without, without you on our own, we would have nothing but terror nothing but fear. We would have nothing to do but run from you. 
but we thank you, Lord, that you became one of us and that you lived a perfect and sinless life. Uh, You held up a perfect witness for God and were perfectly obedient to God the Father in the midst of more pressure than we could ever imagine. And you've won salvation for us, Lord, so that we are safe now. Help us to remember that, Lord. Help us to remember that our foundation, our baseline, is security in you. Uh, help us to know and see how you've done that for us. It means you must be good. You must be looking out for our best interests, Lord. And in that, help us to relax and give in to you and your perfect will. And we pray that you would operate in and through us in the world. And that you would allow us to bring the beauty of your word and your salvation to all those you are calling by your name in San Diego, Lord. Help us to be agents of the gospel. We thank you for this calling. We thank you for the way you've showed yourself to us. Uh, And we thank you how you've been overwhelmingly clear in your love for us in Jesus.